This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Special thanks to the newest sponsor of the Master Brewers podcast, Novazymes. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Oh yeah, we got those last year. And all of a sudden now I got 15 containers. I got 20 containers. They're tucked back in a cubby hole and we're not using them. And now you have a risk sitting there just waiting for an opportunity to... Um, you know, present a, a major hazard to your brewery. This week on the show, everybody's doing it, but are they doing it safely? Um, hi, my name's Mark Yegi. Um, I'm a consultant, semi-retired. Been in the safety business for about 40 years. Uh, I worked in several different industries, uh, from solid rocket propellants to chemicals, and started in the brewing industry in 1990. And I've been working um, with uh, major brewers, craft brewers ever since then. Mark, you recently wrote an article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly called Flavorings That Go Boom in the Night. Why are we talking about flavorings here? Um, with the, the just the explosion, and again, no pun intended there, but um, seltzers and flavored um, uh, beverages now are becoming a, a major market uh, category. And so there's so many craft brewers now that are getting into seltzers and, and sours and just flavored beverages. Um, what they don't realize is that the flavorings often that they're using, uh, like mangoes, uh, lemons, etc., it's a, a highly flammable material. You know, the flavoring comes in an ethanol-based um, solution, and those flashpoints are typically very low and present unique hazards to the brewers using those. Let's uh, let's start with this thing that's what's known as the fire triangle. What does it take to make an explosion? Well, fire triangle is really basic. Uh, it just takes oxygen, uh, which normally we have in our, our normal atmosphere, our breathing air. Uh, it takes an ignition source and it takes a fuel. And that's so you put those three things together and uh, it's the per- perfect recipe for a, a flash fire or even an explosion if it's confined. There are a few other terms we need to talk about before we get too far. You just mentioned one of them. How about telling us about flashpoint and relative vapor density and anything else you think that 
we need to sort of define up front here. Yeah, as a, a brewer, when you're using these um, these flavorings or these materials that are flammable, um, you need this information. The flashpoint, what that tells us, that's the lowest temperature where the material, typically a liquid material, would pull it, put off enough vapor uh, that will support combustion if there's an ignition source present. So that's why the flashpoint is very important to us. And that can be found in the um, SDS, right? Yes, in your safety data sheet, it will be found in there in Section 9 under okay. the physical and chemical properties. And then you have your um, uh, a couple others I'd like to touch on, too. The lower flammable limit, uh, sometimes it's uh, the lower explosive limit, um, the LEL, LFL, and then you have on the upper side, the upper uh, flammable limit and upper explosive limit. That's actually the range if you have uh, whatever material you're using, and typically we're going to be looking at ethanol in our conversations today, that is the range or percent of um, ethanol vapor in air where it will produce a fire. So, for example, ethanol is at, you typically it's like around 3%, 3.3% is the lower flammable limit, and then 19% is the upper flammable limit. So, what that tells us, if I have a vapor concentration in air between those ranges, now I have the uh, a ticking time bomb, basically. All I need is that ignition source. Okay. What's the distinction between flammable and combustible? Um, the definitions there vary. Uh, we have two really governing agencies that, that look at those and define those for us. Um, OSHA, you know, defines uh, the difference between a flammable and a combustible. And then the National Fire um, Protection Association, NFPA, they also define it for us. But really what it means is a combustible typically will have a flashpoint very high. And that's, you know, up, um, OSHA defines it greater than 200 degrees F. And that so uh, anything below that OSHA considers a flammable. Anything above that they would consider a uh, a combustible liquid. And typically, what it what it means to us, you know, at the at the brewery level, is that a combustible is is a lot harder to ignite when you're talking vapors versus a flammable, which would be much easier to ignite because it has those lower flash points. All right, maybe talk about how and where flammables should be stored. Um. Fla uh, flammables, we really, you know, when you receive them in your brewery, um, you could be receiving in any size container. It might be like a pint size container, a uh, gallon size, uh, five gallon, et cetera, 55 gallon drums, um, up to uh, intermediate bulk containers, IBCs, which may have up to like 330 gallons of material, up to tank trucks where you're filling a, a vessel. And that's so on all of those cases on the smaller portable containers, we want to make sure that we're storing them in an approved flammable cabinet, okay, that's designed for flammables. It's designed for storage of flammables because obviously we don't want to have containers sitting around our brewery. And I have found this in some situations where I've been visiting craft brewers. They'll have these flammable materials and they're just sitting in corners. They're sitting on um, uh, benches, etc., waiting to be added to um, you know whatever product that they're making. But again, by not controlling those, um, if you have those that flashpoint, if our temperatures are greater than what the flashpoint is, all you need now is some leakage on that material and you're going to have enough vapor then to support combustion, you know, support a fire. And obviously, you're going to have a lot of different uh, ignition sources around the area if you're not controlling that properly. If, uh, let's say a brewery already has some of these items on site, but isn't already following the proper precautions, where should they start? The best place to start, what I always teach breweries, is in 
uh, NFPA does a good uh, a job of describing this or outlining proper procedures on that, but it all comes down to a basic risk assessment. And risk assessments can be applied to any safety concern that you have. In this particular case with flammables, you want to perform a risk assessment on it. And the starting point is um, defining what are the flammables that I have in my brewery? You know, where are they? What are they? How am I using them? Where am I storing them, et cetera? So performing that risk assessment and just looking at it and asking the questions, well, what if this happens? What if I have a spill? You know, looking at the characteristics of it from the safety data sheet, you know, we mentioned the flashpoint and the lower and upper flammable limits. We talked, we didn't talk about relative vapor density, but that's another very key item there. Relative vapor density tells us, is it heavier than air or lighter than air? Uh, for example, ethanol is one and a half times heavier than air. So if you have vapors coming off of a liquid, they're going to tend to hug the floor and seek low-lying areas. So if you have pump pits, uh, uh, trenches, etc., they may accumulate in there. And again, if they accumulate there, they're going to sit there just waiting for an ignition source. So that's why we have to control those things through ventilation, through monitoring, uh, proper storage, proper electrical equipment in the areas, etc. But it all comes down to performing that risk assessment and taking a um, uh, just a, a, a methodological step process where you take it one step at a time and you're looking at all the different hazards or risks that are presented. And then what controls do you have in place to control those risks? And then is that an acceptable level of risk that you've uh, reduced it to with that control? If it isn't, then we have to introduce additional controls to reduce that risk to an acceptable level. And your TQ paper can help get brewers started on a risk assessment. And you've also got a conference presentation that we'll link to as well. Is that the best way for a brewer to get on their feet and then follow some of the resources you've mentioned? Absolutely. Um, you know, through the MBAA, you know, we're there to help and support uh, craft brewers and, and uh, you know, to make brewing not only fun and enjoyable, but also safe. And, you know, with the addition of these flammables, you know, we add additional levels of risk there. So starting with, uh, you know, the article, looking through the um, the slides that are there, that gives a good basic starting point on on helping, a, you know, a craft brewer identify where are these hazards in my brewery? Because a lot of times they don't even realize the hazards there. You know, they're interested in making the best beer that they can, not understand and realizing that I do have a, a higher risk here with that flammable material. And there are precautions I need to introduce into my process, you know, to control those so I don't end up having a, uh, you know, a bad incident that's going to, you know, possibly hurt my workers, hurt visitors, um, you know, and I absolutely disrupt the operations. Okay, great. Um, well, I'll, um, like I said, we'll, we'll, include some some of those links uh in the show notes here um but at the bottom of the tq paper there's um there's quite a few links including the free access to the nfpa so uh, i guess mark let's get into some more um specifics and, and drill down a little bit more so uh, talk about how electrical equipment factors into the equation here yeah this is one area that when you're dealing with flammables um you know whether you're uh, uh adding manually adding the uh, flavorings 
uh, to vessels or measuring those out or actually pumping them from a tank. Um, it's very important that we look at that. And again, I come back to that risk assessment that we talked um, about earlier, is that in a risk assessment, you're going to define these areas where we have um, you know, potentials for leaks. So we have to ask ourselves that question. What if this goes wrong? What if I have a pump that blows a seal? Uh, what if I have a flange that leaks? What if um, when I'm moving a um, uh, intermediate bulk container or 55 gallon drums of material around, if I puncture one of those or if they fall off the pallet and I have a, a flammable liquid spill, meaning my flavoring just got out of the container or out of my process. At that point, I now have a vapor um, hazard. And again, that's where I have to look back at that safety data sheet and see what are the characteristics of the material. Okay, it's heavier than air. It's going to hug the ground and tend to move that way. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's uh, flashpoint is uh, perhaps 60 degrees Fahrenheit. If I'm uh, my ambient temperature in my processing area is 70 degrees, 74 degrees, I now have a temperature where my material, the spilled material, is going to produce enough vapor to support combustion. So that's when I then look at um, these ignition sources. Some of the uh, best ignition sources, I hate to use the word best, but uh, uh, what would really tend to ignite the material are our um, instrumentation that we have, our electrical equipment, pump motors, etc. If they're not rated properly for a flammable liquid service, meaning they're a class one division one or a class one division two, then that's the perfect source for ignition there for my material. And um, I've seen that often happen because brewers will typically want to use the same equipment that they're using for brewing their um, their standard beers, not really that when realizing when I introduce a flammable liquid in there, I have a whole different animal, a whole different risk. And now that uh, equipment that I'm using to process with could actually become an ignition source for the material. All right. Sounds expensive, Mark. <laughs> uh, it can be. It can be. And there's, you know, there's ways to uh, work around that. But again, uh, it's a lot more expensive if you have a major fire in your brewery also. Fair enough. Uh, Mark, we've also, uh, we, we've even got to consider mobile equipment like fork trucks, right? That's correct. Um, and that's a common mistake that I will see. We'll have brewers that they'll uh, introduce proper electrical equipment, such as pump motors, um, lighting, etc. in the area. And they've done a very good job. But then they use a standard fork truck uh, to um, move their IBCs around their intermediate bulk containers or the 55 gallon drums, et cetera. So again, a fork truck, um, if it's an electric fork truck or a propane fork truck, they can also be an ignition source. And that's so they have to be properly rated, meaning it should be rated as an, uh, an EE or an EX, depending on the application. But again, they can become an ignition source. So we really want to look at that and uh, make sure that we control that risk. What is different on those fork trucks, on the EEs and EXs versus the standard fork truck? Um, they just, uh, they're designed so that they cannot produce sparks, um, you know, just for, for vapors to uh, migrate into the area where a, a spark would be introduced to uh, to create that ignition source. They have uh, an extra design. Sometimes the forks on them, for example, will be a, a non-sparky material. You know, if you're scraping along a concrete floor, for example. I was going to ask about that, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. things of that nature. If they're battery operated, they've got a special configuration and design around the battery and battery terminals so that they do not become a, an ignition source. They're more expensive, as um, we mentioned. and uh, But again, it's a lot more expensive if uh, you were to have a major fire in your brewery. 
coming up. If I don't have a green light, then I've got to move that around or scrape some paint off the barrel or whatever it happens to be so I get down to uh, metal where I can, can achieve that good ground or that good cross bond. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweetbread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Georgia has a social gathering at Elsewhere Brewing in Atlanta, January 13th. Check out the recreating hop aroma outside of the plant and its practical application in modern craft brewing webinar January 19th. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th through the 28th, just outside of Toronto. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course starts February 11th. District Carolinas holds a winter social February 12th at Cabarrus Brewing in Concord, North Carolina. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Talk about static electricity, the importance of grounding and the various possibilities for getting that done safely. Yeah, static plays a big role in this, and there's several documented cases out in the brewing industry uh, and obviously the chemical industry too. Um, static electricity, again, um, I think everybody knows what static is. We've had that experience where in the wintertime you walk across the carpet, you touch a doorknob or a metallic object, and you get that start, static spark, that arc. You know, and it, you, sometimes you hear it pop. If you're in a dark room, you can actually see it at times. That is enough um has enough energy to actually uh, ignite a flammable vapor. 
and that so that's why it's so important to um to control static electricity with the workers that are you know um handling the materials um also uh, there are several documented cases, even the size of a intermediate bulk container. And these are, um, if you've seen a, um, I'm sure, sure most people are familiar with an IBC. It's the the plastic or composite containers. They hold anywhere from 275 to 330 gallons. Uh, typically, they're white. They could be metallic, which is better. You know, we like the metal ones because they're easier to ground. But just filling from the top. Let's say you're doing a top fill on those with a, a flammable material and that that free falling liquid just falling that four to five feet. There are documented cases where because of the, the falling material through air down to the bottom of the container can generate static and a discharge where you can get an ignition. And as I said earlier, there are several documented cases where this has occurred. And that's so, for example, when you're top filling in that risk assessment, when we assess that risk, we should take a dip tube and place it down into the bottom of that IBC and that so that uh, when we fill, you're only allowing that uh, free falling liquid to fall maybe two to three inches. And then very quickly that the bottom of the dip tube is covered with liquid. So now you've totally el eliminated that static hazard from free falling liquid. You know, obviously, if it has a valve in the bottom, which some of them do, you want a bottom fill through that valve. And, uh, you know, so you eliminate that static risk at that point. Okay. Maybe explain some terms like uh, bonding or cross bonding and, and things like that. Because um, there's a lot of different ways to skin this cat, right? That's correct. Um, let's start with grounding. Um, grounding is when you take and you connect a conductor, meaning typically a wire, copper wire, or braided wire, and that will go to your equipment. Let's say it's a scale. Um, it could be your, your if you have a metallic um, IBC, you'd be connecting that to a building ground or an earth ground. So that's called grounding because I'm going from my piece of equipment or my container right to the, the uh uh, building or earth ground. Okay, that's a direct bond that creates a ground. Cross bonding, on the other hand, is when I have two um, two pieces of equipment or two vessels. For example, if I have a, a a container and I'm going to put a portable mixer down inside of that, you know, through the top, there you want to cross bond from your container that you're going to place the mixer into. To the actual mixer. So what that does, if there's any difference in potential, meaning static electricity, um, by cross bonding them, um, the electrons basically they're going to be um, at the same potential. Then, so there's no difference in potential because by cross bonding, I've hooked those two together. Now they're equal. Okay, so you won't have that difference in potential. The difference in potential that's where you get the static arc you know, or the spark or the ignition source. Now, you can't use one without the other. So whenever you have it grounded, you want to make sure things are cross-bonded also. And that's so that anything that's cross-bonded, and if it's cross-bonded to a grounded item, all that static electricity then, or any differences in potential are going to bleed off to ground. And often, um, mistake that I see is sometimes we just cross bond our items, but then there's no ground. So that all that means is the static electricity is still there. It's just at the same potential between the two pieces of equipment. But the minute that an employee, for example, who's standing on a floor touches it, they will be at a different potential and you're going to get that arc then because it, uh, the electricity is going to try to equalize and that's where you'll get the static potential. So again, you have to use grounding along with cross bonding. 
I, I've experienced an example of this um, in a brewery I used to work in years ago. We had uh, silos for malts, but they were essentially like vinyl bags, you know, giant vinyl bags instead of a, a metal silo. And when the grain was um, conveyed uh, into those vinyl bags to fill them, we would, you know, build up static electricity during during that that process. And so, you know, if you walked over and touched that bag, you you would get a, a, a very large spark. So that that obviously that equipment was not properly grounded. How often do you see that? And what uh, I mean, that, that should be a pretty simple fix, right? Yeah, what, where, where it gets complicated is when you have non-conductive materials. You know, for okay. example, those vinyl bags that you were talking about, those were probably a, uh, a non-conductive material. Again, I'm assuming because I wasn't there to see what you actually have. But they, they do make conductive bags. They do make, um, for example, like um, uh, beer transfer hoses. This is a very good example. A lot of brewers will use their standard brewer hose uh, to transfer um, flammable liquids. Okay. In that situation, you don't have, you know, with the rubber hose, you know, there are just different types of materials on there, but they're typically not a grounded hose. And that's so in those situations, by uh, running your, uh, your flammable flavoring through that hose, um, you're going to generate static electricity because you have the two dissimilar materials running across each other. And the rubber is an isolator. Okay. It's, it's, uh, you, you, you you can't ground it typically and that's so that's why you have to use a specifically designed hose that either has graphite embedded into the matrix of the rubber so that it is conductive so you can bleed static off or what you will see in hoses too is they want run a wire through that's embedded in the uh, hose and that creates what they call a faraday cage effect as long as you have at the ends of the hose your metallic couplings or attachments they have to be uh you know correctly attached to that ground wire and that's so then when you attach it to um, the tank or whatever it is now you have continuity and you have cross bonding basically between those and that so again you can ha you can achieve that through different methods such as that faraday cage effect or through actual uh, uh, conductive materials in the hose and i believe you've got um, some information in your article about how to test that and, and whatnot too right yeah, and that's a key thing, um, you know, with craft brewers that we really want to stress. You, they, they'll buy the, uh, you know, like a distiller's hose, they sometimes call it, but it's a hose that's capable of being grounded. And that, but if you buy that and you use the hose, it's like any other piece of uh, critical equipment that you have in your process. You want to set up a preventative maintenance program on that where periodically and typically we suggest annually, you're going to have an electrician or someone just check the continuity of that hose to make sure that that, that especially where you have the grounding wire that's embedded in a helical fashion through the hose that it hasn't been compromised and that's why you just check continuity it's a very easy to check uh, to do and again it assures now that you have that bonding uh, all the way through the hose and then uh, whatever uh, equipment you attach it to you're now cross-bonded and typically tanks and etc they're going to be hooked to a building or an earth ground so now you achieve that grounding slash cross-bonding to uh, help control that risk of uh, static electricity. How often do you see totes or drums that are improperly grounded in breweries? Uh, let's say more frequently than you would like. I can yeah. walk into almost any brewery. And again, it's it's just not something that uh, brewers have, you know, 
analyze the risk or I think maybe a better way to put that is where they understand that risk of improper grounding, you know, and the, and the hazard that's created by doing that. You'll sometimes see, for example, metal drums that are painted. They may have a ground strap attached to it, but if you have paint between um, that alligator clip on there, that's, that's typically a non-conductive material and you may not have a good ground. They mm -hmm. do make, they do make grounding devices out there, which I highly recommend that they have a little light on it where it actually does a self check. So if you hook uh, the ground strap to a, a tote or a uh, tanker truck or a barrel, uh, it will give you a green indicator light that tells you you have a good ground. And I highly recommend those because that that way an employee can look at it and say, I've got my green light. I know I have a good ground. If I don't have a green light, then I've got to move that around or scrape some paint off the barrel or whatever it happens to be. So I get down to uh, metal where I can, can achieve that good ground or that good cross bond. All right. Mark, most brewers are probably carrying around cell phones and maybe some other portable electronic devices. Any considerations on that topic? Yeah, there's actually, again, documented cases out there where there have been fire incidents that have occurred because cell phones, I mean, everybody has them nowadays. And uh, if you take them into a classified area, and when I say classified, that means into a flammable area where you potentially would have flammable vapors present. Those are um, ignition sources also. Uh, again, they're not uh, rated or designed to be in that type of area. So there as a brewer, what you want to do is, is set up a, um, a, a control procedure for that. And typically what they'll do is they'll have a sign uh, right outside the door and just a little shelf or a, a cubby hole where you put your cell phones in there. Anything that's not rated. A lot of brewers too will use radials. Unless the radials are rated for a class one, division one, or division two area, they should not enter that area. Another area um, to look at that is maintenance. Okay, sometimes maintenance will have to take in computers or laptops, et cetera, you know, to troubleshoot instrumentation or whatever. Again, they have to be rated uh, to go in that area. If they're not rated, then you should follow a robust hot work permit procedure because what you're doing is you're taking a non-rated item uh, into a rated area. So there you should follow your hot work permit procedure. It would just be like if you're going to do hot work in that area. And if you follow those appropriate precautions for that, uh, you should be safe, you know, then to use that equipment in there that's not rated. Mark, what's the most important message you want brewers to hear? The biggest thing is, is that we, we just asked the craft brewers, you know, with the this market share in that seltzer category, just, I mean, going crazy. You really need to look at the hazards and risks that these materials you're utilizing to make seltzer, seltzers or other um, flavored beverages. Really look at it and understand the hazards are there. And, uh, you know, some of them will have a higher flash point and they're not going to be in the category that we're talking about. But more than likely, you're going to see um, some that are in that category. And you just need to take the appropriate precautions for that. You know, I don't care if it's a pint container that you're utilizing or if you're utilizing uh, tanker trucks coming in and unloading through that. That pint material can cause a small flash fire that could hurt somebody severely or depending on what else is in the area, cause a major fire in the brewery. So the big thing here is that we need the craft breweries just understand what you have and then perform that risk assessment on it to really understand the risks, understand the controls you have in place, and make sure that they're appropriate. So another thing along those lines is uh, brewers might want to consider even uh, oftentimes vendors will send you samples of flavorings, right? So um, those samples uh, have the same issues, right? So I might, I have, I'm staring at a, a couple of bottles right now of like grapefruit extract and mango flavoring that are um, 
are probably hazards. That's absolutely right. Little because, tiny bottles. Yep. And, you know, the sales guys, they're doing their job. They're going to come into your brewery and say, hey, I've got the latest, greatest flavoring. This is the best mango flavoring or whatever it happens to be. Let me give you some samples and you try that. So what you need to have there is a good control process. So you know who's bringing in uh, different things, what they're bringing in, and how do we control those? And the big thing, too, that I've found in breweries, <clears throat> let's say you use you try five, six different flavorings, you use one of those. What are you going to do with those other samples? Make sure you work out a, a, um, a process with that supplier. If they're giving you these free samples, if you're not going to utilize the samples, they will take, take those uh, spent, you know, the samples you're not using, they will take them back and properly dispose of them because you don't, you know, typically what will happen is, oh yeah, we got those last year. And all of a sudden now I got 15 containers. I got 20 containers. They're tucked back in a cubby hole and we're not using them. And now you have a risk sitting there just waiting for an opportunity to um, you know, present a, a major hazard to your brewery. And likewise, you don't want to just throw them in the trash and make it someone else's hazard. No, and definitely do not dump them down the sewer. Um, we've seen that happen too, where people will dump them down the sewer. And um, um, I can tell you some stories back in my old chemical days about uh, getting vapor, flammable vapors in the sewers and seeing manhole covers flying through the air when you have an explosion underground like that. You definitely don't want that. That was Mark Yagi here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links to keep your brewery from going boom in the night. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.